Acts 23 um, is on the heels, as you know, of Acts 22. It's funny how the Bible's put together that way. Paul has uh, made his way to Jerusalem, where he knows there's going to be trouble, knows he's going to be bound if he believed the, the prophecy of Agabus, one of those prophets that came down and said, look, uh, he took Paul's belt and he tied his hands up and he said, this is how you're gonna, it's going to fare for you. Paul said, that's all right. That's, I have to go. I've got a bag full of money to take to the people of Jerusalem and whatever happens, happens. He said, I'm willing to die if need be. He's not afraid of death. That's what you have to be when you're in ministry. Certainly like Paul, you're going to go where you have to go, do what you have to do. And if you die along the way or get beat up, you're okay with that. And Paul was. That's the way it is when you're the Apostle Paul. So he goes to Jerusalem, and in, in an effort to appease those who thought that Paul was out there telling everybody to abandon the law, and let me pause there for a second and say, Paul never, ever tells Jews to abandon the law of God. The law of God is a, it speaks of the character of God, the moral law of God. Uh, even the ceremonial laws, don't eat this, don't touch that, <clears throat> that reflects a cleanness, a separation that God wants for his people. Paul never went out and said, look, now that we know Jesus, we can just throw away our Old Testament. Never. But the accusation was that he had been doing that. And so when they see him in the temple, they falsely accuse him. And they say, well, he brought, he must have brought, we see Trophimus, who is the Jew from, from Asia and Ephesus, and he, he's with Paul, so he must have been taken by Paul into the temple. Therefore, he took Trophimus into the temple. Paul would never do this. He's a good Jew, and Gentiles aren't allowed to go to certain places within the temple. But they accuse him of it. Everybody gets up, and they all line up. Paul's on the ground, and they're beating him to death. And they would have beat him to death had Claudius Lysias, the tribune in charge, the tribune, which means he's over a thousand people, uh, in Jerusalem, sees what's going on, goes down to break it up, moves all the people off, picks Paul up. Paul starts talking to him. And he asks Claudius Lysias if he could address the crowd. He lets him. So Paul addresses the crowd. That's what Acts chapter 22 is. It's Paul's defense. And he tells them who he is. They listen to him. He's speaking to them in Aramaic, their language. Uh, and he tells them, we get all the way up to verse 21, and he's talking about when Jesus, the Messiah, appeared to him, and he said to him, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, the Jews don't like Gentiles. And so for Paul to say, I was sent by God to the Gentiles, well, that's a further insult to the Jews. You're saying that Gentiles don't have to become Jewish before they can convert? And so they think that somehow Paul is putting Gentiles on level with the Jews, and he is, but they don't like that. They're racists in that sense. It says, verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement, and they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. And so they try to kill him. So there's more chaos. And so the commander comes down, who is the tribune, Claudius Lysias, comes down, um, breaks it up. What's going on here? Arrest Paul is gonna. He gets one, uh, one message from the from the Jews. Here's what they're saying. Here's what Paul's saying. He thinks Paul's lying to him. I know what I'll do. He says, "I'll take Paul over here, stretch him out, and whip him to within an inch of his life, and then he'll tell me what's going on." Well, he stretches him out, and Paul says, <clears throat> "Excuse me, one thing: Is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen who has been uncondemned?" 
So he uses this trump card he's got, this card that he has for Roman citizenship. He is a Jew by birth. He was born to Jews. It's in his DNA. He's a descendant of Abraham. And yet he is also a Roman citizen. He was born into that. His dad or grandfather and or grandfather was a Roman citizen. So he now has the privileges of Roman citizenship. So now Claudius Lysias pulls him away and says, what's going on? What do I do? So now that he knows that Paul is a Roman citizen and he knows that he can't beat him, he knows that he can't keep him in chains. Chapter 22, verse 30. On the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he, that is Claudius Lysias, released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, it's not normal, certainly way out of the norm, and he has no power to do this, the tribune or the commander. He has no power to tell to tell the Jews, y'all need to convene your Sanhedrin council. You need to come together and have a meeting. No Roman could do that, and Jews wouldn't listen to him anyway. And yet, in an effort to bring everyone together, Claudius Lysias decides to go to the Jews, the council, it's the Sanhedrin, and uh, y'all come together and let's meet and let's find some charges, formal charges against this guy so we know what to do. Opposition to Christ's church, which is essentially what they're after here, uh, has been going on at least since Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't a, a big whoop de doo It was just people murmuring under their breath, oh, these people are drunk. They're drunk with sweet wine. Uh, actually, the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Uh, in Acts 3 and 5, or Acts chapters 3 through 5, the apostle, uh, I'm sorry, apostles Peter and John healed uh, this blind man. Um, and it was a blind man, a layman. And he gets up and walks around the temple, and the Jews don't know what to do with this. How is someone able to heal this person uh, with the power of God? When we don't even think these, these people, Peter and John, these uneducated Galileans, what are they doing? And so in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5, they beat the disciples, they put them in jail, or the apostles, and they get back out, and they go on and preach Christ's word. So it just goes from there. Stephen's death... You know, Stephen, one of the first of the seven, we call the first deacons in the church, appointed in Acts chapter 6. Uh, no one can do, can argue with him. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council can't argue with him. He's too good of an arguer. He knows too much. So they bring him before their group, and he stands up, and he tells them exactly what kind of sinners they are, and what do they do? Let him go. They stone him to death. And so you can see the persecution widening, getting deeper and deeper. To the point of death. Saul of Tarsus, before he becomes Paul, the apostle, he led a charge from Jerusalem to Syria, up to Damascus. He wants to go arrest Christians, have them brought back to Jerusalem, and have them killed. Acts 8 and 9. Of course, he comes to know Christ in Acts 9. Herod, later on, killed James, the brother of John, first disciple among the twelve to be killed. And then he attempted to kill Peter, and Peter miraculously escaped. So there's death now. The church is experiencing death as a result of just simply believing in Christ. On the island of Cyprus, Paul goes out. After he's converted, he confronts a Jewish false prophet uh, who wants uh, uh, only to hate Paul and turn people away from the gospel. There's the unbelieving Jews at Pisidia and Antioch, where Paul goes, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus all oppose Paul's gospel. I only listed these cities because these are the ones that says the Jews stood up. And we're against the gospel. Acts 13 to 19. 
Some Jews in Corinth again rose up against Paul as he began his trip to Jerusalem. We read about that in chapter 20, verse 3. Paul went another way to avoid their, their, uh, their ambush on him. And after his arrival in Jerusalem, we saw the last couple of weeks uh, in chapter 21, he again faced their hostility, chapters 21 and 22. So in Acts 23, Paul is again under attack from the Jews, this time the Sanhedrin, which is their ruling body, their Supreme Court. It doesn't look like a formal trial because it's Claudius Lysias that's called them together. I don't know what to do with this guy. Let's bring you guys together and y'all tell me what's going on. I doubt he said the word y'all, though. <laughs> Caught myself on that one. Just a quick overview on what the Jewish Sanhedrin is. It's Supreme Court. It's also called the Council, the capital C in your Bible, typically. It's of Israel. It's comprised of 70 men, probably dating back to the 70 elders of Israel that that um, Moses appointed. Um, they were composed of Sadducees and Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, um, presided over by the high priest. So 70 of them, and then the high priest presided over all of them, whoever the high priest would have been in that year. Seen first when Jesus stood before it in Mark chapter 14, where Caiaphas, the reigning high priest of the day, asked Jesus, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, mm, I am. I am. Think about that. I am, you and me, is, yep, that's me. Are you Lance Waldy? I am. But for Jesus, a Jew, to answer a question, are you the son of God? Not only is he affirming he is the son of God, to say I am, that's the holy name of God, is it not? Exodus chapter 3, is, that's what God said, here's my name. The Sanhedrin is seen second when Peter and John stood before them in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 22. So we saw it first when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin. Second, when Peter and John stood before them in Acts 4. They were accusing them. Third, it's after the arrest of the apostles in chapter 5, Acts 5.21. Fourth, we see the Sanhedrin after the trial of Stephen, or during the trial of Stephen in Acts 6. And fifth, here with Paul standing before them. So this is, not a, 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 this is a group you'll come across. If you didn't know who the Sanhedrin was up to this point, now you do. You see them where, the, where they are in the Bible. They thus heard and rejected the gospel on five occasions. They heard and rejected the gospel on five occasions. Now, Paul was part of this original group. Paul was part of the Sanhedrin. No doubt. Might have been on the Sanhedrin back when Jesus was condemned. We know two other people that were on there that came to know Christ. What were their names? Nicodemus and? The guy that gave him his tomb. Yeah, that guy. Joseph of Arimathea. Yes. So it's not like everyone always did, but... As a group, they heard and rejected the gospel on five occasions. After the Jewish revolt in AD 66 through 70, uh, they lost all power. They tried to reconvene in a, in a place called Jamnia, uh, but uh, they lost all power. They have never since arisen out of the ashes, uh, the Jewish Supreme Court, the, the council. So as it comes together, the council comes to assemble, and they brought Paul down and set him before them. I want you to know there that it says in verse 30, he released him. That means Paul no longer has these, these chains on. He's not under arrest, but he can't leave. Probably if he'd have left, his, his life is in danger anyway. He can't leave, but he's been released. Lysias could not keep him in, in bonds because he's a Roman citizen. Um, Paul is sleeping. We don't know where. All of this is probably happening in this. Uh, if you imagine the temple, I had a picture of it for you a couple weeks ago. Just a, a rectangular structure. Uh, the western wailing wall that you see today, that's what's left of Herod's temple. There was the temple that Zerubbabel built. 
Remember after Solomon's was destroyed, Zerubbabel built it. So imagine just a little square. Herod beautified it with a big square around it. And at the corner of the, the west end, you've got the west end, you go down to the southern end, and that's where the, the palace or the fortress of Antonia is. It's where the, the Romans stood watch over the Jews. So any ruckus going on in that area, they would see. And that's where Lysias saw it all happen. Oh, there's a big ruckus going down there. He goes to fix it. So he does. And we believe this is Pentecost anyway. So to have him released, probably Paul is sleeping in the temple of, or the uh, fortress of Antonia in some dungeon, no doubt. We were just there recently in that fortress, and the dungeons are, are really low and ugly and, and cold and, and wet. Uh, Paul's probably not sleeping on a nice warm bed or soft pillow, wouldn't you think? And that, that, I want you to know that just to factor that into a possibility I'm going to give you in a minute. Anyway, next day comes down. Verse, chapter 23, verse 1. These are bad chapter breaks here, by the way. Paul looking intently at the council. Imagine him looking intently at the council. It doesn't mean, that means that Paul did not get up that day and come before the council and kind of be doing this. He wasn't looking down. Looking intently at the council is to say he's doing this. Kind of making eye contact. Remember, Paul used to be a part of this council. About 15 years prior, probably knows everyone on there. They know him. But he's staring at them in a way that probably offended them. Looking at them. I mean, what if I looked at you and I said, Brothers, hey, look at me over there, Jimmy. Look at me. You know, if I did that. Look at me. I got something to say to you. That's, that could be offensive. Hey, who's this arrogant fellow? What's, what's he going to say? That's what Paul does. Looking intently at the council. Never to be intimidated, this guy. He came to Jerusalem to die. He's not worried about a thing. Looking intently at the council said, brethren. Now, by the way, that's not how you address the Sanhedrin. You address them with words of respect. Elsewhere, they're addressed with respectful words. He's just saying, hey, guys, you and I are equal. I know you and you know me. So I want you to put in Paul's mouth a very confident, confident words, a confident air. Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That, that sounds kind of, wouldn't, wouldn't Paul better have said, guys, I'm a, I'm a sinner and I've done a lot of bad things in my life. But, uh, you know, I, I don't really know what y'all have me here for. He got beat up the day before. They were trying to kill him. We don't know how long it took for Lysias to get to him to rescue him. Maybe he's got broken ribs and a collapsed lung. We don't know. He didn't have a good night's rest. And here he is, probably thinking they're going to kill me. These are the same people that crucified Jesus. Paul knows this. They're bloodthirsty. And this is what he dresses. This is how he dresses them. Boldness. I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now think about Paul's life. He helped kill Stephen. He persecuted Christians. Is he saying, no big deal, I was good with all that? No. Once you look back on your life and you know you've been forgiven of your sins, you're forgiven not only of your sins, but of the guilt of your sins. And plus, we might go further in saying that Paul was a good Jew and firmly believed that persecuting Christians was the right thing to do. He didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. Thought he was another false Messiah. So he was doing that with a good conscience. So don't leave home without a good conscience. Here's a couple things about the conscience. It doesn't mean we've never sinned. 
If you've got a perfectly good conscience, that's what we call a sociopath. A sociopath kills people and has a perfectly fine conscience about it. In fact, they really have no conscience. It doesn't mean we've never sinned. It simply means we are free from guilt, having been forgiven. We're free from guilt. A clear conscience doesn't mean that our actions are always pure. It just means that we, we don't necessarily... I mean, let's think about it in terms of having a right mind. We're in Christ, and my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean everything I've ever done is pure. I mean, I can tell you, I have a clear conscience. I can sleep at night. But that doesn't mean I think everything I've ever done is perfectly fine. I don't. I mean, if I think about it, I think about I mean, how many of you maybe lie awake at night and go, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I would have done this. Or I wish I would have given that. Uh, uh, drives you crazy. But you didn't. You got past it. Lord, I'm okay with it. I can go to sleep. That's all he's saying. His conscience previously permitted him to persecute, and he's over that. God's forgiven him. He's accepted it. Conscience is the faculty that passes moral judgment on our actions. Would you agree with that? It's a faculty that passes moral judgments on our actions. So if you're doing, if you're behaving in such ways that, that are immoral and, and it doesn't bother you, again, that's what we call a sociopath, based only on the highest standards of morality and conduct perceived by that individual. If you think it's okay to kill people, if you think it's okay to uh, um, uh, rape and pillage, you know, people today, with, with the, the horror that happened the other day at the, the school there in Nashville, I mean, there are groups rising up. Not only are they making fun of Christians, guess you didn't pray enough. Have you seen that? Guess you didn't pray enough. Should have been praying a little harder. Now they're making martyrs, a martyr out of the, the killer. He, she, whatever this person was, is now a martyr. They died to kill bad people like you and me. It's, it's, it's happening. And folks, don't, don't let it drive you crazy. Up to the rapture, it's just going to get worse. We can pray for revival and God might bring it. But at some point in the history of the world, things are going to deteriorate to the point where it's so bad. Remember, God had to do it, the flood. He flooded the entire world and saved Noah and his family. It's coming to that place. I would like us to escape it too, but I'll be honest with you, I think we all want out of this garbage, all for selfish reasons. We just want to go back to our cushy lives, don't we? Lord, be with America. Ask yourself, why am I praying that God would restore America? Because America is such a great Christian nation? No. Because, uh, I don't know, it was just better back in the 80s when Reagan was president, wasn't it? It was just a little bit better, and, and I really like my life. I'd like to finish out my life and enjoy my, my nice retirement I've put aside or whatever you've done. It's all for selfish things that we want these revivals, I think. I shouldn't say all, but much. I want to see my children uh, get married. I want to see, uh, see my grandkids, right? Lord, let it all happen after I get what I want. Okay, Lance, but what about when that happens, if I give that to you, somebody else is in the midst of waiting for that to happen. Well, don't worry about that, Lord, as long as I get what I want. So watch out on what you're praying for. Check your motives. What do I want that for? The conscience is neither the voice of God, nor is it inerrant. So the conscience is good, uh, but uh, we've got to evaluate our conscience or why we do or don't have one. A conscience ignorant of truth is not necessarily, will not necessarily pass accurate judgments. If you don't have truth and you have a conscience, uh, you're in trouble. 
The Bible speaks of different types of consciences. A weak conscience, 1 Corinthians 8. Weak conscience in the context of 1 Corinthians 8 has to do with people that some say, well, I can eat meat offered to idols. And some say, I can't eat meat offered to idols. It will give me a guilt complex. The strong believer says there are no idols. God has purified everything. I can have whatever I want. The other one says, I'm not quite sure about that. Today we might see that in terms of alcohol. Something, well, I can't touch alcohol um, because that's wicked. You know, that's the devil's juice. Why? Where do we find that in the Bible? Well, that just means you grew up Southern Baptist, right? (laughs) Others say, well, I can have all I want. Well, you can't have all you want. You can have alcohol insofar as it doesn't make you drunk. The moment you get drunk, then you are in sin. But there's, there's weak and, and strong believers. I can't do Halloween. That's a pagan holiday. Well, it's not a pagan holiday in our parking lot. We give out candy and we have some fun. But some say no way. Some say yes way. Who's weak? There's a weak conscience. You have to follow your conscience. If it's bad to you, then it's a sin for you. There's the wounded conscience, kind of along the same lines. There's the defiled conscience in Titus chapter 1. The evil conscience in Hebrews 10. And the seared conscience, the worst one. That Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 4.2. That's the conscience that did originally something that they knew to be wrong, got away with it, kept doing it. Now it's no longer a sin to them. doesn't bother them at all. It's a seared conscience. You have calluses on your hands? You have a scar somewhere in your body? You don't feel anything there? The conscience can be like that. Seared, burned, no feeling, no nerves in it. Worst kind of conscience. No longer responds to the truth. Scripture commends a conscience that is good uh, and it's blameless and that's clear. Commends a conscience that's good. That means it's based on Scripture. It's based on truth. Don't let your conscience be something that you made up. I think this body of truth is right or body of, of what you might call truth is right versus I believe the body of truth is found in God's Word. This is what He gave us. And my conscience is connected to this. Outside of it, I'm okay commends a conscience that's good and blameless, one that doesn't violate that conscience. Lots of people keep doing That's what counseling is. Counseling is dealing with people with uh, consciences that have gone too far. They've gotten away with too much. Being a pastor in a church, seeing people come and go. Usually you see people that come and go, they leave because I'm on their conscience. And it's not me, is it? When you preach God's word, the spirit of God is out there. And it gets in people's conscience. I ran into a lady the other day. She came up and she said, uh, I was at Home Depot. She was a real nice lady. And she said, um, do, you, uh, do you want, we've got a, some deal on windows. And I said, well, I know Pat and Vicki McCollum. And, and if I ever need windows, I go to them. They might even give me a deal. She said, oh, you're a blessed man. Where do you work? <laughs> I don't know why that came up here. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm a pastor. Where are you a pastor? I told her the name of the church. She said, is the Holy, no, she said, is the Holy Ghost doing a work there? I said, God's word is taught. Hence, the Holy Spirit is there. That kind of confused her. I gave her a card. Didn't see her Sunday, but maybe we will. So the spirit of God is when it's preached, it steps on toes, bothers people. Because someone's conscience, hey, I don't like that. I don't like being told I'm a sinner. Apparently you guys are okay with it. You keep coming back. But you might be surprised at how many I hear, hear from and through the grapevine. I'm not going there. The guy calls everybody sinners. I'm sorry. 
Are we not? Is that not the elephant in the room? I don't want anyone to go away thinking they're good people. God makes us, declares us righteous through faith in Christ. We remain sinners. And I love thinking about that because I love thinking about the grace of God, how it just keeps going beyond my, my wretchedness. So the conscience should be blameless. A spiritually healthy conscience stems from the forgiveness of sin based on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Um, I was reading a book the other day. It's called Lies Pastors Believe. And this guy's harsh. Every pastor believes lies. Pastor, you're a liar and you believe your own lies. That's what he says. Slam that book shut. I'm not going to read that book. I don't need to be insulted. I can go to a church that does that. No. I loved it. It was good. I wanted to know what, what am I lying to myself about? And one of the things he said that pastors do is that some pastors decide to become pastors because they've lived such a horrible life. When they come to know Christ, they feel like they want to atone for all their bad deeds by becoming a pastor. And he's saying, that's not a calling. Don't confuse that with the call to be a pastor. That's you with a guilty conscience trying to make up for what Jesus has already washed clean. And so a spiritually healthy conscience stems from the forgiveness of sin based on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. That's happened. That's done. You and I owe nothing in return or to finish that off better. Do we owe something in return? Owe it not in the sense that we have to pay it, but the overflow of our heart after such a declaration is the worship that naturally flows from Knowing that our conscience has been cleared. I could have done this, this, and this. Horrible things. God, you have forgiven me. Not only of the sin, but of the guilt that goes with it. All gone. Don't have to make up for it. So, brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Hear ye, hear ye. Everyone said, right? The high priest, no, verse 2, Ananias. By the way, Ananias was high priest from 47 to 58 A.D. 47 to 58, 11 or 12 years. Um, The high priest at Paul's statement, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. They must have. Hit that boy. And by the way, Ananias is known to be, according to Josephus, the worst high priest. That says a lot because there were some horrible high priests, especially in the intertestamental period. But Josephus says he was the worst high priest Israel knew. He stole. In fact, tithes given by the Jews were to be given to all the priests. He stole them all. He was, it was normal for him to go around brutalizing people. Uh, he was profane, insolent. He was everything. I read all these kinds of horrible things about Ananias. He followed in the heels of other high priests we know. Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Annas. We read Annas. This is not Annas. It's a different one. Annas was the was the... The the high priest in Jesus' day, but his son-in-law actually had the power of Caiaphas. This is a different one, Ananias. And when Paul said, I've got a perfectly clear conscience in front of all you guys, brethren, Ananias commands, wherever he's standing, hit him. And he did, apparently. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? That's looking intently at the council. So, was this justified? By the way, you're not supposed to speak ill of one of your leaders. In fact, it says that. One of the bystanders, verse 4, said, Do you revile God's high priest? 
And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That comes from Exodus 22, 28. So Paul knows I'm not supposed to do that. Why did he do it? There's all kinds of theories as to why Paul did or didn't. Let's go through them. I find them interesting. That way when you read this, you'll understand. Maybe uh, think a little bit more. Did Paul suffer from bad eyesight, being unable to see well? Some have surmised that. In fact, I'm quoting John Stott, who is not a quack at all. Uh, recently passed away, uh, but a good commentator. He says this, to me, the most likely explanation lies in the poor eyesight, which Paul is known to have had. And he's not known to have had poor eyesight. It's surmised he had poor eyesight. He tells the Galatians, if you could, you would have pulled out your eyes and given them to me. Does that mean he had bad eyesight? Maybe. Um, which Paul is known to have had. In this case, he's saying, you whitewashed wall may have not been so much a reference to hypocrisy as an uncouth allusion to a white-robed figure across the court whom Paul only dimly perceived. That's possible. Well, it's, it's possible. John Stott's not, an, not a fool. Good man. He'd be in heaven. Uh, you might adopt that one. Others surmise that Paul was out of the loop in Jerusalem. He had been away for a long time and just didn't know who the high priest was or what he looked like. This would mean that Ananias also didn't have his priestly garb on that day. So whether Paul uh, knew him or not, the priestly garb would have given him away as the high priest. So it's possible. He doesn't know. But, you know, Paul has just got back from James' house. I think Paul would probably know what's going on in Jerusalem, who's in charge, What's his name? Ananias, as wicked as he was, that would have permeated around Jewish circles. Yeah, that crazy high priest, Ananias. I don't, I don't accept that one, but it's a possibility. Or after a day and night of abuse, Paul may have been at the end of his rope after being unjustly struck in the face. I mean, what's your first reaction if somebody slaps you across the face? Yeah, I mean, at the very least, the juices are flowing, and you, who knows what you'll say? That's, that's human, right? His retort was thus from his flesh, which he immediately regretted. Here's what he says about himself in Romans 7. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me. But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. It's strange for us to read Paul that way. Here's a man who wants to do the right thing and doesn't. Can you relate to that? In everything, right? You do something, you say something, you go, ah, I knew better. I wish I would have done better. Paul's human too. Got red blood. Fiery guy. Probably a type A personality. Type A's don't take slaps across the face real easily. By the way, the word that's used is not a slap across the face. It's a closed fist punch. Uh, same word used for what they did with Jesus, slugging him. He says, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? This is a quote from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. So it's possible that Paul, good man that he was, after a night and day of abuse, gets up early, got to go face his own brethren again, another trial, no breakfast, Probably. Just paint the worst picture you can. He got beat up the previous days in pain, and now they're going to do it again. They hit him again. It's one thing to get hit, but what have you ever had a, maybe you have a broken nose. Maybe you're rocky and your nose is already broken. 
and, and Apollo Creed hits it again. Painful, even more painful. And if you're a fiery guy, you're even more fiery at this point. This is possible. So he just lashes out. But note what he says. Again, God is going to, I mean, immediately gets hit in the face. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. What's a whitewashed wall? Jesus speaks of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 23 as whitewashed tombs. So imagine a casket. A casket is, is a beautiful, typically, $20,000 box, and it's beautiful. On the inside are dead people. And so it's shined up. It looks beautiful. That's what he's calling them whitewashed wall. That means you are full of deadness. You are shallow like a kiddie pool. You're a whitewashed wall. Now, the, the reason I think Paul can see is because he used whitewashed wall. I think he can see just fine. He's been gazing intently at the crowd. He knows who Ananias is, I think. He identifies him by his robes, and it's the very robes he's saying, that's your whitewash. You may look godly. You may look like a pious Jew, but remove that robe and you were a wretched piece of nothing. Full of nothing. You whitewashed wall. That's what I think. Now, is it okay for him to say that? Though we might wonder how Paul could have gotten so angry when struck, ignoring his own advice that he had previously written. He's already written this because his first letter to the Corinthians have already gone out. He wrote, 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are reviled, we bless. I don't see him doing that here. We have to remember that Paul was not Jesus. Always use that. Somebody tells you, you know, wants to rail on you, just say, hey, I'm not Jesus. It works every time. Because <laughs> you're not. Who, Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, uttered no threats. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.23. When Jesus was struck in violation of the law, he merely asked, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? This is what he does to Annas. Annas says, whip him, hit him. Close fist. So we might say, Paul, why didn't you act like Jesus? Even you wrote to the Corinthians, when we are reviled, we bless. So have you ever written something that sounds really good, it's really upright, but you didn't keep it? That would be okay for Paul. I don't mean okay in the sense it's not a sin, but we would understand that's possible. We can't excuse Paul's behavior, but we can sympathize. We're just like him. Yet his quickness in acknowledging his wrong, in verse 5, was more than many of us are willing to do. He's quick to respond. So let me give you one you might not have read in the past. Calling the high priest a whitewashed wall recalls Ezekiel in chapter 13, 8 to 15, where God denounces false prophets for misleading the people with comforting words of peace in a time when there was chaos like building flimsy walls covered with whitewash to make them appear solid. And again, Jesus calls people out as whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, 27. Ananias was so evil, how could Paul know that he was the high priest? His behavior masked his identity. In other words, I think Paul speaks what he does with a real edge of sarcasm. Now, I say that because I get sarcasm. Some of you don't, and that's probably best. But someone like me who gets sarcasm a little too much, I'll explain this option if you don't already get it. In other words, Paul knows Ananias is over there, sees him in his priestly garb, 
but can't recognize his identity as the high priest. Not literally, but doesn't recognize it because he's so wicked. So Paul did repent of this in verse 5 by quoting uh, Exodus twenty two twenty eight, Or did he? I don't think at all. Normally Paul would respect the high priest, but this high priest is beneath contempt. Thus his words are, I should have put perhaps sarcastic, not apologetic. In other words, Paul is saying this, he wasn't acting like the high priest, so I didn't recognize him as the high priest. Is that possible? I mean, if we want to exonerate Paul, I, I don't like Paul to be mistaken. I wish people would do that for me too, but I don't want Lance to be wrong. So let's find a way to make sure he's right in whatever he said wrong. Don't do that. I don't know. Paul, Paul is, Paul's looking intently, probably ready, probably prepared himself. A good apostle is one that knows, okay, the night before, okay, I'm going to face this council. I'm going to be ready for anything. They may beat me up. He remembers what they did to Jesus. He was probably part of that. All right, if they insult me, if they hit me, whatever, I am not going to lash out. I'm going to, I'm going to act like Jesus. That's what any good Christian should do. Um, especially in preparation when you know you're going to be raked over the coals, as it were. But you should do that every day. Lord, when I get up, Lord, this day, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who's going to say what, how I'm going to be treated at work, who's going to do what to me. But whatever it is, let me be ready. Give me the wisdom to endure any abuse, whatever happens. That's a good prayer to pray and be on guard for it. My guess is that's what Paul did. So he is sarcastically saying, you whitewashed wall. You stand over there in your priestly garb and you act like you're this pious leader of our people. I don't recognize you as such. Could Paul do that? He did. Um, what do I have one more over here? No, I didn't. I already showed you that. So let's finish it. So I think Paul's exonerated in doing it by quoting the law down there. He knows what the Bible says from Exodus twenty two twenty eight. Not supposed to be, by the way, that principle is not just a principle, but Romans 13, 1 and 2 tells us the same thing as Christians. So all the garbage that we say about our leaders, and by the way, they're begging for it, aren't they? Our leaders today beg for it. And if you watch news or you read a news app, they lead us into it as well. Don't fall for it. Don't fall. We are not supposed to speak evil of our leaders. Why? Because God appointed them. You're thinking, why would God appoint the leaders he did? Because they fit the morality of our nation. Do they not? Why wouldn't he? A, a good Christian wouldn't fit the morality of this country. We might pray for it. God is saying, those days are gone. What? <laughs> well, reviling is one thing. Speaking ill, evil. I don't think Paul spoke evil of his rule at all. He just called him, you're a whitewash too. You're a white. You are a hypocrite. Jesus does that. Calls them hypocrites. Calls them whitewash. It's okay. Is a fool is one who denies God. It's not a name calling thing. A fool. You, you deny God, you're a fool. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he certainly would have known the hypocrisy of him. It's been a long time since he's been associated with him. But you're right. He would have. That's why I think he took the, the stance that he did or the, the stature he did, staring at them intently. So after he does this, 
He quotes the verse and he says, okay, I agree. You're right. Not supposed to speak evil of your ruler. He could be doing if he's, if he just spoke out of turn and his anger got the best of him, then he's going, guys, he repented immediately, which is admirable. If that's the option, guys, I know you're right. I'm sorry. Immediately repented. They recognized it and repented of it, quoted scripture. You're not supposed to speak evil of your people. Brethren, forgive me. I'm sorry. That could have been that way. Or it could have been more along the lines. Yeah, 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 I know. You're not supposed to speak evil of a ruler of your people. But he's not a ruler of my people. Not in that garb, not with the way he acts. One or the other. If you're telling the truth of the person of what they are, is it actually speaking ill? Sounds like it's more like speaking the truth, right? And there is a way to speak truth about someone and to say the exact same thing and insult them. You know, I don't mean to, to call you names or anything, but I don't want to engage in a name calling uh, back and forth like we're on a playground in the, in, the, in the second grade. But you are a fool. The Bible says a fool says in his heart that there is no God. That's different than going, you ignorant fool, pointing your finger. You said the same thing, but in a different way. Yes. So now we're at an impasse. He's been slugged in the face. This is not going well. You ever have a meeting where you get together and you think everything's going to be good within the first five minutes? You know this is going nowhere. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee. Note that he says, I am a Pharisee. He doesn't say I was. I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, which he admits to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So he recognizes that this group is filled with Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees are known to be a very liberal group of Jewish leaders. Pharisees are sometimes ultra-conservative in fact, you could be a Pharisee. The jump from Pharisee to Christian is just a, a tweak. The jump from Sadducee to Christian means abandoning your liberalism. It's a huge jump. We know people like that. There are some people that are really just a tweak away. We don't want to say they're that far away. Uh, everyone's just as far away as God, as God is to just transforming them in a millisecond. Um, but there are some that are a little bit closer, like uh, a Roman Catholic has a respect for the Bible. They know who Jesus is. They believe he died on the cross. They believe he rose from the dead. They're just a tweak away from understanding that salvation is by God's grace through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. Just a tweak away, but it's a big tweak, isn't it? Versus, say, a Mormon who is a lot further away from that tweak. Or a Jehovah's Witness. Or a cult member of some sort. Or a Muslim, long way away. So Paul's Phariseeism made him just a tweak away, although he hated Christ. He was turned to Christ. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. By the way, you could be a Pharisee and a Christian. You can't be a Sadducee and a Christian. You have to abandon one. That's what I was saying. I am on trial, he says, for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Paul brings everything down to here's what it is. You guys are trying to find charges against me. Ananias struck me without any formal charges filed against me. That's illegal. He struck me. You guys are wanting to condemn me. There's been no formal trial. He's goes ahead and he goes ahead and says, look, here's what you, I'm on trial for. Here's why everyone hates me. I believe in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Knowing that there's two groups in there. One group doesn't believe in a resurrection. 
That's what it says is, verse 7. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. One of the reasons for this is that the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch, or the Torah. Pentateuch is a Greek word. Torah is the Hebrew word. They're the same thing. First five books of the Old Testament. They only accept those five books. There's nothing about a resurrection in those first five books. There's some about angels. They don't accept that, though, anyway. Or spirits. Kind of confused. But the Pharisees accept all of what we call the Old Testament. And the resurrection is preached in the Old Testament. Especially Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You've got a resurrection. They believe all this. In fact, one of the one great things that Jesus he does in the, uh, on the week before he, the week of his death, on his Passion Week, uh, remember the Sadducees come to him, and they've got this little scenario for him. Jesus, we got a question for you. There was a, a man, there was a woman who, who married this man, and he died. And then when he died, his brother married her. And then he died, and the third brother married her. And then the fourth mother married her, and then the fifth, and then the sixth, and the seventh one. And then they say, in the resurrection, whose wife does she belong to? Or whose husband does she belong to? To which Jesus said, oh man, you got, to, you got me on that one. <laughs> he says, you neither know nor understand the scriptures. And he doesn't go to Daniel and say, in the resurrection, because they must have said resurrection very sarcastically, in the resurrection which you clearly believe and we don't, whose wife is she? Where does Jesus go? He goes to the Pentateuch. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is talking to the burning bush and God is speaking from the bush and he says to Abraham, what? To Moses, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus uses that passage from the Pentateuch, the book, this, books that they listen to. And he says, he is not the God of the dead. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Hmm, shut them up pretty quick. Don't you wish you could do that with everyone who just retorted against you? Jesus always did it with one line. He among you who is without sin, throw the first stone. Whole thing's gone. Just one line. Would you just like to be God for a day? Just one day, yeah, right? So Paul or Luke is telling us here, here's what they believe. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection. And Paul notes that there's two groups because he's been on that committee before. And by the way, the Sadducees far outnumber the Pharisees on the council, always did. Liberals typically outnumber conservatives. That's just a, uh, the way it is and always has been. So knowing that there would break out an argument there, some say, well, that was, a, that was a cheap, low-life thing for Paul to do. Just throw out there and turn all the attention away from him so that they'll argue and he can slip out the back door. That's not what he's doing at all. He's bringing it down. You have no accusation against me. Let me tell you guys what your accusation is against me. I believe in the hope of the resurrection. To which the Pharisees, whom he's part of, come to his defense. Verse 9, and there occurred a great uproar. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great dissension was developing. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. In other words, he's standing there watching it all unfold. Lysias, the commander, 
the tribune. Now he's afraid Paul is once again in trouble, afraid he'd be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So now Paul has been rescued again. Probably the the minority Pharisees are saying, he's with us. There's really no little charge here. We don't like Paul. We don't like what he's preaching, but you can't get on to him believing in the resurrection. We believe that too. You'd have to condemn all of us if you're going to condemn him. So they're trying to rescue him. The Sadducees are trying to overpower him. The tribune sees it. Got to go down and break up another fight. Rescues Paul, brings him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, now imagine you're Paul. You have no country. You're not being listened to. What you've said has gotten you in nothing but trouble. On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Paul had every intention. Remember, he was going to go back to Jerusalem and where he is. And he told the Romans when he wrote the letter to the Romans, I'm coming your way on my way to Spain. He had every intention of going to Rome. And now God is saying, yeah, you're going there. It's not going to be the way you thought, but you're going there. As Paul sat back going, maybe I'll never make it to Rome. I might not make it out of the barracks tonight. God appears to him and says, you'll be all right. Take courage. Don't you love that? God appearing to just give you that that little oomph you need to make it through. I've already done that. So let's take a look at a few applications. God's grace overcomes not only all our sins, no matter what we've done, it also overcomes all of our guilt. Any of us can say what Paul said, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience up to this day. Anyone can say that as we talked about earlier. But those of us in Christ who have received God's forgiveness, God offers it, have you received it? It's there, God's hands are opened up. I welcome you. Have you received it? If you have received it, then we can say exactly what Paul said. I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience. doesn't matter what you've done. It may come into your mind from time to time, only long enough for you to remind yourself, the blood of Christ took that away too. That was washed away at the cross too. Tell yourself that all the time. That was taken care of. Self-talk. You know you're your best preacher. You are your best preacher. Not your favorite preacher out there. They're not your best. You are. You've got to preach to yourself all the time. I know who I am in Christ. I'm struggling with who, who I think I am, who, I, who I'm feeling sorry for and I am, who I feel guilty about and I am. But I know who Jesus is. I know what he did. Listen, Lance. Stop your belly aching, Lance. You know the truth. Get on with your life. You are your best preacher. And you can't offend yourself like other preachers can. When we denounce one whom God has put in authority, if in fact Paul was denouncing him, I'm taking this application from that possibility. When we denounce one whom God has put in authority, we denounce God and his word. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That's straight from Romans 13, 1 to 2. Spoken of in Daniel chapter 2.21. In Daniel 2.21, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He being God, of course. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Again, in in Daniel chapter 4, verse 7, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes 
and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is in 100% sovereign control over our elections. That's why if you're, if you're running for president and you don't like the outcome and, and, you're, and, it's, and it's missed it's off by two or three votes, go ahead and order a recount if you want to. But who's in control? God is in control. Every time, all the time, accept your fate, move on. God said no. He said no. I asked for God to do this. Here's what I want. Nevertheless, not my will, Lord, but yours. No, didn't get voted in. No, didn't get in. Move on with your life. Like Paul, when we're confronted with our sin, a clear conscience and a healthy walk with Christ will help us see our sin immediately, confess it, and repent of it. We see not only the evil that stares us in the face, as Paul did with the high priest, we bemoan the fact that our flesh overtakes our better judgment and the love of Scripture. Again, that goes back to the possibility of Paul is actually acting out of anger. It's good. Once you've done it, just say, I know, I know, that was wrong. I messed up. And usually we can say that to ourselves. We don't like to admit it to the person who's trying to show it to us, do we? Look, I didn't need the reminder. I already knew it. You know, I go home sometimes in my, and I know when I've said something wrong. I always know when I've said something wrong or I've gone too far in a sermon. I just go home. There's a little silence with the wife, a little silence. I already knew it when I got there. I don't need her to remind me, but she wants to. And sometimes I need to hear it. There's never a time in which I want to, but I'll grow up one day. Right, sweetie? I told her, I said, from now on, I'm going to start coming to your ladies' class. And she said, well, women can't be teachers over men, so you can't come in. Smart aleck. I know. Christians who thus deal with their sin in their lives will save themselves most chastisement. If we would just judge ourselves, get over it, get over it. I was wrong. Forgive me. Move on. We don't have to wait for God's judgment. God graciously comforts his downcast servants. So much so the scripture calls him the God of all comfort. Paul loves this in 2 Corinthians, talking constantly about God's comfort. And he says, God comforted me, and now I'm going to go out and offer it to others, as does the church. God comforts us, he says, in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Well. I've, I've kind of just go down to the bottom one because I've already said the first one. Uh, when ridiculed for our faith, let us do as Paul did. He saw the core debate as Christ's resurrection. That is why we're Christians. We're Christians because Jesus raised from the dead. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. If you can prove that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, Paul says himself, the religion is gone. It, it, it blows away like a vapor in the wind. If you can disprove the resurrection. And many have gone out with that passage in mind and said, then I'm going to disprove the resurrection. And they come back Christians. No one has ever been able to disprove the resurrection. Ever. It was out there in the first century for the eyewitnesses. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They all saw it. They couldn't explain it. Second century, third century, people making up things. Now in this, here we are 2,000 years later and people think, 2,000 years later, think they can tell you it didn't happen. That's so ridiculous. So far removed from it. Paul is essentially saying, I'm not on trial for denigrating the law. I've never denigrated the law. I'm a Pharisee. I'm on trial before you today because the Sadducees don't like our theology, brothers. They don't like our theology, brothers. Stand up. We believe in the resurrection. They don't. When downtrodden, Tharseo. 
Go home with a new Greek word tonight. Tharseo. It means take courage. One word in Greek. Take courage. Jesus to the bedridden paralytic. Take courage. Tharseo. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Matthew 9, 2. To the woman with a 12-year-old hemorrhage. Tharseo, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Matthew 9, 22. To his frightened disciples on the stormy sea. Tharseo. It is I. Don't be afraid. Matthew 14, 27. In the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion, Tharseo, I have overcome the world. To all of us at the end of our proverbial ropes, take courage. God is in charge, sovereign over your life. You will not die before your time. You will not have anything happen to you before God has ordained that it happened to you. What are we doing worried about these things? Tharseo, take courage. If the God of all creation is telling us to take courage because he's got it all in his hands, you're worried about our friend Biff? I am too. I don't want, to, I don't want Biff. I don't want anything bad to happen to Biff. I certainly don't want him to die. Darcy, Lance. God, God is saying, everyone dies. There's no guarantee you're going to die young, old, somewhere in between. You're going to die. That's the guarantee. And Lance, I've got it in the palm of my hand. I'll take care of it. You pray my will, not yours. I'll take care of things. You take courage. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be people with the Spirit of God who indwells us, people of courage. I think we can only have that courage when we know for certain that you are in charge, you're in control. You hold all things together. Nothing happens outside of your permission, of your divine will. May we love that, accept it. May we worship you because of it. We are in your hands. I pray that we would be bold. I pray that we would be convicted. And when we do sin, as Paul did, we immediately repent of it, recognizing it, repenting of it, swallowing all pride, all for your glory. As we leave here tonight, whatever's on our minds, whatever's gotten us down, whatever keeps us up at night, I pray that that word, Tharseo, would be on our hearts. Take courage. You've got the whole world in your hands. We love you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 